Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Um, thank you, Nigel, for ability, and thank you to the University of Bath for this great honour. I'd like to dedicate tonight's lecture to our team at Motivation. First, I'd like to ask a question. How many designers or engineers are there in the room? Quite a few. Any clinicians, therapists? Not so many. Um, so at this point, the therapists in the room are thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be all about nuts, bolts, mild steel, and technical stuff. And the engineers are thinking, oh, my God, it'll all be about pressure sores and posture. Um, it's going to be a bit of both. Um, but I want to ask you also, what's your perception of disability? Is it this that we've seen so much about on TV? Or is it this? <laughs> or is it for there for the grace of God go I? And what's your perception of disability in developing countries? Have you ever thought what it would be like to have a disability in a developing country? And what's going to be your disability? What's going to happen when you actually acquire your disability at some point in your life? Have you thought about ageing? I'm sure you have. Um, but the ongoing level of ability you have and the care you might need. Um, hopefully by the end of this evening, your perception will be different on all counts. I certainly hadn't thought much about disability at age 21 when I was out farming. My idea of a wheelchair user was someone who sat in the top left corner of the screen on TV at Wimbledon. And I couldn't quite understand why people in a wheelchair would want to go and see Wimbledon either. I've actually sat in that place and I'm really pleased I have because it's a great view. <laughs> <laughs> the balls come straight at you. So, uh, as you've heard, this is 35 years ago, 1982. I was a farming student. I was uh, working in Australia briefly. I'd done quite a bit of work in the UK. And... Um, I went from that farm about three weeks later to a place called Fraser Island and um, I was with two friends with this jeep and about 30 seconds after this picture was taken I got out of the water and I dived in to the water knowing how deep it was and hit my head on the bottom and just made a silly mistake that an exuberant 21-year-old thinking the world was great would make. Um, and this is what it did. Doesn't look much, really, does it? Considering what it achieved, it's all my own work. Um, <laughs> and what it is is, uh, I broke my neck at the level of C four five, which is the cervical four five. So you can see my neck there. And all I did really was dislocate one bone on another. All that did was slice my spinal cord, which cut the communication between my brain and the rest of my body. And that's left me with my shoulders, biceps, no grip in my hands. Um, unable to wear a gown, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and paralysed from here down, essentially. What is less obvious is that I can't feel from here down, and that probably has a greater impact minute by minute every day for the rest of my life than not being able to walk does. And so getting around in a wheelchair is actually quite an efficient thing to do um, in the right context, but it isn't always, and you'll see why. So... I spent, uh, I was very lucky, I was helicoptered off the island. I spent uh, five months in hospital in Australia. I spent three months uh, in traction, lying on my back with tongs in my head with 15 kilos of weight on the end of it. 
And uh, that was my first day up in a wheelchair. Um, as you can see, it's quite a big chair. Uh, they still maybe wear a colour. So this is sort of four months into my rehab. You can see the groovy haircut I'd developed by that time because they shaved the sides of my head and I had this long Mohican because they wouldn't cut your hair. Um, yeah, and so that was my first day up. I lost about 10 minutes before I've passed out. In each day you work towards getting to be able to sit up all day without passing out, basically, because the blood just drops straight to your feet. Um, I couldn't move my hands or my arms at all then. So what I have now still worked at the time. But of course, once you suddenly sit upright, you look forward to this day of sitting upright. And when you do actually sit upright and they stick you in this thing and you can't feel from here down, you can't quite work out what you're sitting on and you can't look down either. It's all a bit strange. And so um, it all feels quite normal now, obviously. People often ask me, what, what is like, so what was it like? You know, what was it like to be, ha have this happen to you at that age? And I said, well, you know, if you imagine life as a bit of a jigsaw, and of course at 21 you think you've got your jigsaw pretty much made and you've got all your edges and your corners in and you've got a few pieces to put back and to complete your sort of roundness in life, of course you haven't at all. Um, and I returned to the UK after five months of rehab for another five months of rehab in London um, with my jigsaw in all over the place, really. So I had maybe four corners left. So all of a sudden you've got to restart putting those bits of jigsaw back. And part of your rehab is, and your life for the future is sorting out how you do that, because some of your life is taken right back to being a, a one-and-a-half-year-old where you're incontinent and you need care and, and so on, and the rest of your life moves on at slightly a different pace. And so um, my biggest question to myself was, what on earth next? Clearly farming was out of the question. Um, but the other thing that was going on in my head at the time, and I only read this quote about a year after I'd left hospital in London, and it was written by the social worker who was part of my rehab team. It's not only a body that's shattered following a spinal cord injury, but an ego and a self-image. I thought that was a bit sort of uh, self-indulgent uh, at the time, but I thought, actually, no, that is sort of what goes on in your head. And if you look up the word ego in the dictionary, it's about, uh, it describes it as self-esteem, self-importance, self-worth, self-respect, self-conceit and self-confidence. So if you take the conceit and the importance bit out of it, maybe... Those are really important things that we all need to actually make us feel who we are. And so those sort of things need to be put back. And you start doing that by a number of things that can happen to you. Um, I don't think this feeling is exclusive to spinal cord injury, by the way. Spinal cord injury is quite a minority of people who have disability. Only 17% of people are born with a disability, 83% acquire the disability in, at some point in their life. Um, and there's, so that, that sort of attitude towards disability is um, something we've come across some very interesting sort of reactions. When Simon and Richard and I turned up in Bangladesh, as you've heard that we did in 1990, um, 1989, the three of us all had sort of blonde, floppy hair, and uh, we turned up at the passport control at Dhaka Airport we handed in our passports all together and we all looked like sort of, you know, young, blonde, British types. And uh, the passport 
the guy just looked down at us and he looked at, he looked at the other two and he looked at me and he sort of nodded and he said, you brothers? And we went, no, brothers. And his brother. And, uh, and then he just looked, nodded at me and he said, uh, is he a peasant or is he just abnormal? And <laughs> to which we all laughed our heads off. And the other two said, of course he's a peasant, he's from Essex. <laughs> and... Um, those attitudes to disability we have come across all over the world um, and, and in the UK as well. You know, um, I remember saying to one of my, one of my co-hospital sort of um, patients in, in London, we were all sitting around the beds one night and these three, two, two other guys are all about the same age as me and uh, I said, to, you know, I think, I think I can cope with this now at this age, you know, get used to this, but what happens when you start sort of losing your marbles and you can't sort of, you know, work out what to do and how to get your trousers on and so on? And this guy, Derek, turned around to me and he said, Dave, what do most people worry about when they get old? They worry about not being able to walk, not being independent and being incontinent. We'll be used to it by then. That <laughs> <laughs> is true. So I left hospital, I was given one of these, as you saw on my first day, uh, and I left hospital on one of these. This was designed in 1932, it's an Everson Jennings wheelchair, perfectly good for 1932, not so cool for 1982 for a 21-year-old, or anyone actually. And it was designed for the kind of environment that you'd live in, maybe in a rehab setting or a residential home, or somewhere very flat and very, you know, built up. It certainly wasn't built for developing countries. About a year later, and I feel very lucky to have had an injury in 82, and in 83, some more active style, better designed, more adjustable wheelchairs started coming into the UK from the US and from Scandinavia. And I managed to get one of these. They were more money than my car, I'd sold my car for to go to Australia to pay for my ticket. Uh, and they're about four times that price now. And so this day I got this new active star wheelchair, not unlike what I'm sitting in now, completely changed my life because suddenly I had a chair which I could adjust to fit me. I could make the way I wanted it to look and I didn't want it to be a huge part of me. I wasn't going to hide the fact I'm in a wheelchair. How could you? But um, that was a life-changing moment to the point where in some of the mornings I look across the room and think, that's a really nice piece of equipment. I actually want to get in that today. I don't mind being seen down in public in that. Whereas what you're seeing on the screen there, I felt like I'd sort of had this piece of hospital equipment given to me and I had to use it and keep using it. And I'm sort of quite proud of the fact I struggled on for a year to push that thing around. Um, my co-hospital uh, colleagues used to call me Touche the Turtle because the way I pushed it, because it was so slow, which is a bit like I was earlier on. So I went to Oxford Polytechnic, as it was then. I met a guy called Richard Frost in my first week, who will come back into the picture in a minute. And I left there and was the envy of my colleagues in that I got a job at IBM. It's my 1980s flat-top haircut. And uh, that's my ID badge. And I'm afraid, you know, my parents thought I'd landed and, you know, I would have a job for life. I would get a pension, which I did. I got a letter a week after I started, which scared the hell out of me, said, your pension will be this, this, and this. Of course, now I'm thinking, why don't I stay there and listen to this? <laughs> and I um, realised within about six months that the corporate world was really not for me. 
IBM are a fantastic company. They couldn't have done enough for me. They changed things for me. They, they said, from the moment you come into this building in your vehicle to the moment you leave, what can we do for you? Do you need a new wheelchair? And unfortunately, I just got a new one before I started work, so I couldn't say yes. But um, what did happen there, and this was a life-changing moment among the ones you've already heard about, um, was that I met this design team. And I was uh, able to go to different parts of the company and look into other areas of the, the role of motivation. And so I thought, I know what, I'll get myself out of programming, I'll go down to the photography department. And unfortunately, the, the lab I worked in in Winchester, um, uh, or in Basingstoke, that's the big BE, like a fishing boat on my badge, um, was in, uh, in Winchester in an old uh, building that used to be Oliver Cromwell's house. And that's where the IBM laboratories are in uh, Hursley and Winchester. Unfortunately, the photography department wasn't accessible, so the managers said, well, he can't come here because he's not accessible. And so they stuck me in the design department. Unbeknownst to me, I was going to meet people who changed my life forever. And so one day at lunch, I sort of said to a few of these guys I hadn't really met, there's only a small department, about 10 of us. Um, so what do you guys do on those big screens and drawing and stuff? And they said, well, we're industrial, industrial designers. And I said, what's that? And they said, we're the people who design the products that you're writing the code for, the outside bits, if you like. And they took me into this amazing uh, prototype room, and they showed me what they'd been doing. And I was just like, wow. They're all blue foam models, you know. Um, and they were doing working on just 2D CAD at the time. And I said, so you're the guys who make the button where I can't reach it, and you're the guys who make the keys too stiff for me to push with my fingers that have got no resistance to them. Yes, we are. And, <laughs> and I thought, I need to be one of you. And that was my sort of epiphany, if you like, and my journey into the design world. I hadn't gone to art school. I hadn't taken O-level art because they wouldn't let me. And so I set myself on the course to get out of IBM, which you didn't mention, what's you know, it's the worst thing you could possibly do for your career, um, and go to design college. And to cut a long story short, I ended up, quite how, I don't know, on a course at the Royal College of Art doing product design. Uh, it was actually called computer-related design because I thought that would at least give me an angle into the place. Uh, because I had actually no, no, absolutely no portfolio or nothing at all. So I had to, I got one of the guys in IBM to help me do that. But it was like, how do I ask this guy to help me? And that tells him I'm going to leave. And he actually, when I went to him and rang him up at home one night, he said, oh, don't worry about that, because I'm leaving too. <laughs> <laughs> to set up my own practice. Um, so we ended up uh, in our first year, and we were given this design project to do to, for the Fry Memorial Award, which we all had to enter. And uh, it was design a wheelchair for developing countries. I had never thought what someone might do in a developing country if they were a wheelchair user. I'd used a wheelchair for uh, six years at that point, and I had never thought about it, not once. So people who sort of laud me as being, you know, this guy who had this great vision, he was going to go out and help people in developing countries, I'm afraid not a bit of it. It landed on my lap one day or on my desk, and Simon, the guy on the left of this picture, came over to me and said, look, I've travelled in Africa and Asia a bit, and I've seen what happens in workshops. How about we team up? So we did, and we won the prize. And this is us presenting 
to Lord Snowden, and you'll see here Jeremy Fry in the white shirt, who was from Bath, and helped us a great deal get off the ground. And we ended up teaming up with Richard, and we went off, thanks to the vision and help from Jocelyn Stevens, the rector at the time, to go and really see what we'd done, whether it was worth it, whether it was useful, relevant, whatever. Um, and so this was the beginning of our design journey into international development. We had no idea what international development was at the time. And what we found in Bangladesh was a rehab setting not unlike I'd been through, but quite different in terms of the amount of funding and the money. And the... So this is a non-profit organisation that was founded and um, run by a lady called Valerie Taylor, who'd been a VSO out in Bangladesh from the late 60s and was still there. And she basically had started this place. And the rehab was not dissimilar to what I had, you know, but in a very different circumstance, obviously. And what was happening was they were making wheelchairs, they were copying the Everson Jennings design because that was ubiquitous around the world and still is. And so they were making actually a pretty good chair, really. It was um, made of steel. The water pipe that they used was really heavy, really thick gauge. So the chairs were really heavy. They had no removable sides. It's not dissimilar to what I had in that chrome chair. Um, they caught, thought up some really quite clever ideas using a bike headstock for uh, the front caster barrel. And they were restricted by 28-inch rickshaw wheels that were available for the rickshaws. And so that was a restriction on the size. We went back in 1991 and we redesigned what we'd done at college and we made this range of wheelchairs, adults, medium size, and then children, using the same wheels because that was all that was available. And still 15 years later, there were only still rickshaw wheels available. And had we gone and made the standard 24-inch wheel, it would have been a useless product. Had we shipped old Everton Jennings chairs out, it would have been a useless product. And so we started on a journey of designing wheelchairs for developing countries, and then we got asked to go to Poland the next year, which was a very different challenge for us. The wheelchair users there were much more sort of um, trained and educated, if you like, and much more exposed to other things. And the first thing we did was show them that last picture, and they were well, you know, we don't want your chair from Asia, we're Europe. This is Poland in 1992. It was a very different place from it is today. This was still, you know, almost behind the Iron Curtain, it felt like. And yet we could get access to 24-inch wheels, we could get access to front casters, we could get access to better steel. You just couldn't buy it, because if you weren't buying six kilometres of it, then, and you had a rubber stamp and a signature from a ministry, then you couldn't really buy it. So they couldn't really understand why, six, you know, four guys at that point came along and tried to buy a little bit of steel for uh, prototypes. So we had to drive to Berlin to, to find some. But what the user said to us was, we want uh, a chair that's got cookerless wheels like yours and that we, you see in Scandinavia and it's got folding backrests so we can put it in our cars. We want it lightweight. We want it for $150, please. And so quite different challenge from what we had in Bangladesh. And so this set us on a path of just changing things to make it relevant for the place we went to. A year later invited to Cambodia to look at the um, mobility issues facing double above knee amputees, landmine survivors. And there were no regular supplies of tubular steel. 
because the Khmer Rouge had completely destroyed the infrastructure and taking it back to year zero. There was still fighting going on in the north, and so we had to and travel around the country was very difficult because you had to travel during daylight hours, you had to travel in a four-wheel drive with a big flag on the back with an NGO flag on it, and so we had to make um, moving things around very, very efficient. So we flat-packed the chair in a rice bag, and the, the, the organisation we worked with, the partner organisation, still make those chairs today in that way, and they've doubled their production from 600 to 1,200, and they do a fantastic job, and those chairs are sent out all over Cambodia and assembled at local production areas, local assembly areas. This was the first time that we'd, we'd engaged a therapist in our projects. Before that, it was all just technical. And what we realised was that we had to do the hardware bit, but we had to do the software bit as well. It's no accident that I'm just sitting in a wheelchair. A therapist among you probably sitting, he's slouching. Um, and uh, the therapist among you will realise that actually the seating is absolutely crucial, and it's no accident I happen to sit well in a wheelchair and that it fits me, and that I'm taught how to sit properly. I don't actually sit properly, but I'm working on it. Um, but uh, so this was a key watershed moment for motivation, and we spent um, the next 10 or 12 years going around the world setting up wheelchair workshops on request with local partner organisations to the point where we really what we were trying to achieve was about changing the quality of life, improving the quality of life for people with mobility disabilities through using design to do that. The World Health Organization estimates that there are somewhere between 80 and 110 million wheelchair users in the world. And about 80% of those live in developing countries. That's an awful lot of people. We were setting up workshops that uh, were producing maybe 300 chairs a year. Cambodia was an unusual example. Um, and we'd done that for 10 or 12 years. So we, in 10 or 12 years, we set up about 22 workshops in 18 countries and probably been the cause of making about 18,000 wheelchairs. And yet there are those many people. And all those were sustainable workshops. That, that was all great. But we, need, we knew we needed to do more. But it wasn't just about the numbers. The way we do it now is we, have, uh, we run our own humanitarian programs, setting up wheelchair projects and training in developing countries. We have a social enterprise that's within, within motivation that provides wheelchairs to other organisations as well as to our own uh, projects. And that is wholly owned by motivation, so that brings us in income to, um, to help subsidise our fundraising needs. And we work in collaboration. We've always worked in partnership with small organisations in the field, but the collaboration bit has been really important for us to try and influence other organisations that don't maybe follow our path and our methods, to try and influence them to think about design, to think about the right product in the right way for the user. And this is so important. So we've worked, just to give you a quick flavour, we worked in these countries made building four wheelchairs, four wheel wheelchairs, three wheel wheelchairs, supportive seating, I won't go into all the details of all the different designs we've done, boy, you silly. But uh, we've done tricycles. So we've created quite a range and quite a portfolio of products throughout the years. And as you heard from the orator earlier, we got to the point 
in about 2001, sort of roughly 10 years after we started, where we thought there must be a better way of doing this. What's the good stuff we've done? What's the not so good stuff? Or what's the risky bit? And some of the problems we might have had was that workshops we set up may not maintain the quality of what we designed. And that was always going to be an issue. And the price would then grow up, go up. And so it was really important for us to ensure that the user was getting the best wheelchair because it's not the workshop that suffers initially, it's the user on a day-to-day -day basis if they've been given a, a bad quality wheelchair. And so we decided that we would flat pack the chairs and have them made somewhere and they ended up being made in the Far East. But we wanted to really re re retain that one-to-one -one fitting process with the local partner with a partner that was trained how to seat someone properly. And this was absolutely key. So it wasn't just turning our back on local production and going mass production. We did that, but we could ship chairs anywhere. But then you had to work with a partner organisation that you created a small service, wheelchair service, and fit the chair properly to that individual, just like I was. And so that is so important. We've also, as you heard earlier, produced sports chairs for the International Paralympic Committee, and we worked with the International Tennis Federation and Basketball Federations to do this. We also produced a, a low-cost racing chair. And just some of the results from this kind of thing, the International Committee of the Red Cross bought a whole lot of our low-cost sports chairs for Afghanistan. They helped uh, run a tournament in 2012. This is taken in. And this is the first time the guys could actually play proper basketball and were coached and, and competed against each other um, the first time they've been able to do that. So that's the first Afghan national basketball team uh, uh, tournament, sorry, uh, between eight teams. And then they've now felt formed a national team and they now go and play internationally and registered with the International Wheelchair Basketball Federation. Five years before, these guys were just knocking around in old Everton Jennings-style wheelchairs, um, not being able to play properly. Because if you say, well, can't you play in an ordinary wheelchair like yours? Well, you can. It's a bit like playing ordinary basketball in high heels. <laughs> you could sort of play, but you wouldn't jump very high and you wouldn't run very fast and you'd never win. And so that's the difference. These guys have now you know, left their country for the first time. So over 6,000 of these chairs have gone to 60 different countries through different organisations, including our own. And what happens when you put one of those Everson Jennings wheelchairs in a context like we're working in? This is what happens. Is that helping that man? No, it's not. Probably doing him a great deal of harm. Has that boy been fitted with his wheelchair properly? No, he hasn't. It's like you buying a, a two-year-old a pair of size 10 shoes that you would wear because they'll grow into them. That'll be fine. No, it won't. It's not about just giving a one-size-fits-all solution. It's really important that something fits someone. The World Health Organization estimates that about 80% of medical equipment in some countries is donated or funded through foreign sources, but only 10 to 30% of the donations are ever put into operation. And we've seen this. You know, we've seen rooms this, you know, full of wheelchairs to the ceiling when we've been looking around a hospital, having been asked to go make wheelchairs there. And we open a door and, it, and we say, well, what's all this here? That, oh, well, these were provided by so-and-so. You know, why are you using them? Well, we don't really know how to and they haven't got any spares. 
According to Robert Malkin, who's the Professor of Practice of Biomedical Engineering at Duke University in the USA, there's a great risk for every medical de device donation that it's going to hurt its recipient. And that's what's going to happen in those two pictures you've just seen. So this is not just about, you know, design. This is about the combination of that seating and design. And here's two chairs, one by my motivation, one made by an international, another international organization in Cambodia in 93. I took this. It's the same wood, it's the same wheel, they're the same wheels and they cost exactly the same. Which would you give your child with a spinal cord injury, which is what that chair on the right is for? Dieter Rams, who's the guru of simplicity in design, is the man that Jonathan, Sir Jonathan Ive, who's the head of design at Apple, looks up to and tries, has tried to emanate. And he's the reason, Dieter Rams is the reason that Apple products look like they do today. He used to be the head designer at Braun, if you think about Braun products in the 60s. He said, design should not dominate things, should not dominate people. It should help people. That is its role. And this is why design in this context is so important. The training is also very important. And we've developed and designed training. So in the early 2000s, we developed a one-year training course at a, at a training school for te orthopedic technologists in Africa, in Tanzania, um, that we used our knowledge to set up a course. We'd never set up a course before, but, so we had the input from the school for the educational and the examination part of it, and we developed this whole one-year training course. Sorry, um, We've developed a clinical training that we had with our flat-pack wheelchair in, in 2005 when we launched it, and this is the clinical training going on, teaching people from Bangladesh, um, Sri Lanka, Nepal, um, India, how to seat somebody on a very basic level uh, in a wheelchair. And we've, run, we've developed technical training and manuals to do that. And then eventually we ended up working with the World Health Organization to try and bring the sector together and make sure that people are following the right path. Because we had our opinion about the way this work should be done. And we believe very strongly in the range of products, as you've seen, that you're doing it through a service and you're training that service. And so, you know, but that was just seen as motivation's opinion in the, in the global sector. Now it's the, enshrined in the set of guidelines that were published in 2008 that say, if you're going to approach this work, if you're going to provide wheelchairs in a less resource setting, this is the way you should approach it. Thankfully, it's the way we do it. And we had a big hand in, in, in authoring these as well. And that's been a, 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 real, um, a real coup for motivation to, to have these. I'm personally quite proud because those three pictures on the front are all motivation wheelchairs. And I took two of the pictures. Um, so the, the WHO now have developed training to go with those guidelines to help organisations and, and deliver deliver training in a very basic manner and there's an intermediate level training as well. And there's now a set of eight steps that you need to go through to seat somebody, laying it out very clearly for people. So you don't have to be a trained physiotherapist or occupational therapist to be able to, be able to learn this. You need to be able to use a tape measure, essentially. 
And so here you might ask, what, are, what is a wheelchair service? Well, this is a, this is a typical wheelchair service. This is in northern Uganda in Gulu. And so you have a wheelchair user there, the lady sitting on a chair. She's been assessed and prescribed for a wheelchair. She's been, um, it's been decided that she would have a, a, a motivation three-wheel rough terrain wheelchair. And there's two technicians then adjusting and fitting it to make it work for her. One of them happens to be a wheelchair user. So that's an ideal setting and the typical service. The other part of that is when she leaves there, she needs to actually learn how to use and be mobile as possible and independent as possible so that she doesn't have to impact so much of her family. So we run these courses called peer training, which is where you get users who are more experienced training other users in the simple skills. And it's essentially a, build, a, 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 um, a confidence and self-esteem building, self-respect building um, uh, course. We run these over a week, and this is where we see the light bulb come on in people's minds. This is where we see the benefit of our work come to life, because people leave after a week having not really wanted to go, or probably wanted to go home on the Sunday night. And on the Friday afternoon, you can barely tear them away from the other people they've met, because they've probably never met another wheelchair user before in their lives, because they've been held back or hidden away by their family. So... It's about trying to get people the products that enhance their self-respect and their self-esteem, their self-esteem of themselves. Something, you know, a product that they feel like they want to use rather than have to use. And the aim is to really create, you know, proud, active, confident, and independent wheelchair users. So over 25 years, we've gone from this. There's Simon and a chap called Nigel who worked with us in Bangladesh, sketching out ideas on the, on the chalk, uh, on the ground outside our workshop in Bangladesh, to the kind of product we're, projects we're working on now, where we're thinking about how we, or researching how we might um, use uh, 3D printing to deliver parts, postural support devices that go on, the, on, the, on the, any chair, not just our own chairs, by having them in a container, a 3D printer in a container, that will go out to a developing country and sit alongside a service so that the person seating somebody could say, well, actually, I need a bit of a, a, an extra piece here for this child with cerebral palsy, um, but I need it slightly shorter than the standard one that comes in the box, um, so I can actually just tweak the 3D model and print it out on in situ. So almost like going back to our, our roots of, of local production. This is something we're researching, and we've got a Google grant to do this. So we're looking at some really exciting new technologies, trying to break new ground, trying to lead the way in the sector. Um, of course, 25 years ago, there was no such thing as Google, so who would have ever thought that Google would be funding something like, like this? We certainly didn't. And coming on to some really exciting news is my colleague Richard has been working with the Indian government for the last three years to try and get the company, Alimco, who makes rather dreadful wheelchairs that are sort of in the dark ages, to change their approach, modernise and change their model. So they've now engaged us, and this is the signing of the original contract, and just two days ago, Rich met um, Liam Fox on a trade mission in India, tried to get Theresa May, but she was busy, um, <laughs> with the, uh, the director of the company, Mr Sarin, 
um, to design, uh, sorry, to, uh, to build two of our designs under license to Motivation that will bring us income back into Motivation so we can carry on uh, developing new products and new ways of doing things. So this is a real coup because in 1989, when we were on our research trip, Richard and Simon and myself, we met the head engineer of Olympia. They heard about what we were doing and we contacted him. And he came to our guest house and the guy was horrified. This is the head engineer of this company that make wheelchairs for disabled people in India and still do. Um, he was horrified the fact that I was actually even out of bed. He couldn't quite understand. He said, so why is your friend here? What, what, how, why is he out of bed? How on earth has he got to India? And so this was the attitude of the head engineer of the company that provided wheelchairs for disabled people in India. And they hadn't really moved much, much further for many, many years. We tried to talk to them for many years. But Richard and our, and our uh, country director in India have really forged this, this uh, partnership to this point where we've just signed the contract with, with the minister, um, which is a re really a, a major thing. So meet some amazing people. This is uh, Surat in, in, in Cambodia who runs his own little satellite workshop. We trained him in our workshop in 1993. He now... Um, repairs and maintains wheelchairs for people who live around Siem Reap. Um, Sunny Raj, who runs his own flour mill. Again, all using, all able to get out into society and do something useful uh, in society. A baker in northern Uganda, Sadiq. And a guy in a, with a, with a full-time job in, in a motor winding factory. So... I found this quote from a guy called Don Norman, who's the director of Design Lab in the University of California. It's not enough that we build products that function, that are understandable and usable. We also need to build products that bring joy and excitement, pleasure and fun, and yes, beauty to people's lives. And why shouldn't a wheelchair do that as well? It's not just about the latest iPhone. So before I conclude tonight, I'd just like to say something... There's somebody in the room this evening who was... Um, uh, I, I told you earlier that motivation staff are our, are our biggest assets. Um, and so before I conclude tonight, um, I'd just like to refer to one person in the room. Um, throughout the history of motivation in 25 years, I'm the one who's been given honorary doctorates and an MBE and all the, all the accolades and so on. But there's one person who's really been in the background making, initiating, being the problem solver, who's come up with most, some, most of the best things that motivation has ever done. He's brought his business skills, organisational skills. He's brought a sense of fun, adventure, making a completely different culture of organisation and bringing out really our great success. And that person is Richard Frost, who's sitting up there. Sorry, Rich. Without Richard, motivation would not be what it is today and possibly would never have got off the ground. And Richard has decided, and this is a positive thing, this is not, you know, we haven't fallen out or anything, but he's decided that he wants to go on, off on his own and wants to help people who've got great uh, social business ideas to, to, to realise those, just like we've been able to. And so I'm going to be, um, Richard's to be now at the end of the year and we've been, uh, We've uh, uh, 
employed a new chief exec to work with me and the rest of our team, which is a great opportunity, and we're really looking forward to that. But I just want to say thanks, Rich. So you've heard this evening how we've blended a number of skills and skill sets in an unusual setting to achieve what we've done. In some cases, motivation staff have spent over 20 years um, learning their trade. So when they've come out of the NHS or come out of design college, they're quite raw until they've been on a couple of our projects. And what is that trade? What, what's that profession? Well, it's an unrecognised, quite often unreplicable set of skills and experience. And why is that? Why is the most valuable, important asset that motivation has its staff outside of their context, who outside of their context might struggle to have their experience and knowledge recognised beyond the fact they have a qualification in design or physiotherapy or occupational therapy? And, they cho and, and because they chose to step out of the mainstream and go overseas and improve the quality of life of people. In some professions, they may consider it out of date or out of touch. To us, they're gold dust. We would be nothing without our staff. But what if, what if that was different? You know, what, if, what if there were more award schemes that recognised and inspired students to take more than a passing, usually one-off, you know, our, we hadn't taken our prize forward, you know, this would never have happened. They're usually one-off, possibly uninformed sometimes, look at the possibility of using their career to improve the quality of lives of others, particularly on the international, in the international development context. In particularly combining those skills, what if we provided, awarded and celebrated an education structure for young people to follow that mixed skills and disciplines, open their minds to the issues facing people at home but and abroad as well? whether it be full courses or specific modules or award schemes, that after 20 years or more in the field, they would be recognised and valued in society beyond seeing as out, being seen as out of the mainstream. Where do you learn to you know, combine skills that are ultimately needed in the field? There are some course, engineering courses, like UCL run a... Um, uh, a master's in international development engineering. But there are very few of them. There are some voluntary and um, information sources like Engineers Without Borders and Engineering for Change. There's a whole new design and development thinking about how you help people. There's something called Fixperts, for example, that's been rolled out in about 250 universities worldwide and now has become a school methodology for design for helping people to. Um, what if there's a whole paradigm shift between a more collaborative approach of study, you know, combining the disciplines of design, engineering, storytelling, and international development, hybrid graduates that come out with a whole set of skills, not just in, with one title at the end of their name? Could you have a design team that graduated as a team rather than an individual. Very hard to measure, I know. But there's all sorts of ways you could do that. And with what's happened in the world in the last six months that none of us probably ever expected, you know, the UK pulling up the drawbridge, 
a businessman in the States going to build a wall to keep people out. We really need young people to think more globally about the world and its problems and how they might help that. So my challenge to you as academics from a well-respected institution is to think about how you might offer those ways of working and teaching and education. I'm sure you're doing a lot of it already. And excites young, talented people to go out and think about home, but abroad, and not just making loads of money and using product design to make more landfill. Thank you very much indeed.